So we're going to attempt to uh, kind of wrap up our series, Messy Love, but understand this, it's going to be continuous, all right? This, this big idea just needs to be in front of us all the time, continually, constantly, because I don't know that any of us have mastered this big idea that God is love and I should be love too, right? Sometimes I get in my own way, amen? Anybody else? But here are some real conversations that I've had as a pastor. Pastor, my son just came home from college and told me he thinks he's gay and doesn't believe in God anymore and we don't know what to do. Pastor, a ninth grade girl, told our group she's bisexual and has a crush on another girl. Should we let her come to the retreat? Pastor, with tears running down, his cheek, I've lived with a woman for 10 years, but now I've broken it off. Can I be a part of your church? And sometimes I've got to tell you the truth. I feel totally and completely 100% inadequate to be a pastor, especially in those kind of conversations. Thankfully, Paul's put it in perspective for me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4, 5, and 6 is what he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything. <laughs> right? Anything. As coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient. To be ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so I stand here today telling you I'm inadequate, and the only adequacy that I have to answer those kind of questions is the Spirit in me. What I've realized is following Jesus is really hard. Anybody else agree? Following Jesus is really, really hard. And I don't see things sometimes the way the people around me see it as I journey to follow Jesus even more. It's pretty tricky. Because I feel like a misfit sometimes, especially out in the world, but, but sometimes I feel like a misfit even among brothers and sisters who are following the same God that I'm following, who, who are becoming like the same Jesus that I'm trying to become like, and sometimes among even those folks, I feel like a misfit sometimes, like I don't quite belong. And it's one thing entirely to feel like a misfit in the world, but it's another thing to feel like a misfit among your own brothers and sisters in Jesus, right? Because if you're following Jesus, here's the reality, you will feel different. You, you'll be forced to feel different. I mean, I've seen things, I've seen protests in the name of God where people were degraded, mocked, beaten, slandered. I've sat with other pastors as they cheered on a speaker who said some really crude, harsh things about the very people we're trying to reach. I've sat in those settings and I've wondered, really? We're cheering on? harshness, our own harshness, our own judgment, our own. I've witnessed church leaders at conferences bash and beat up other church leaders. I've been in these situations and I've thought, 
these aren't my people. This is not what my Jesus is all about. And when we face those situations, what do we do? What do we do? And so I want to try as hard as I can today to bring as much application to the foundation that we've been building on this big idea that God is love and God is completely love. And so this is the first truth, and and it should be your truth too. I have to be secure enough to stand, to stand with Jesus. I have to be secure enough to be, my security in Jesus has to be so secure that, that I will stand with him no matter the cost. No matter the cost. This means I can't be arrogant because I think I'm right. Even if I'm right, my posture is more important than the people that I will confront. If everything we've studied in messy love is true, then I can't say to somebody who thinks different than me, lives different than me, is different than me, that you're wrong and just feel good about moving on. We can't feel good about that. We can't be okay with that. We can't just cast judgment and walk away. We can't just make a blanket statement about whatever. And by the way, church, culturally, this happens all the time. Facebook? Anybody have a Facebook account? It's the safest way to throw punches at people who think different than us. And for some reason makes us feel good. Makes us feel good. In the journey of becoming like Jesus, we will feel like misfits. We will feel like misfits in the world, but we'll also feel misfits like misfits just around the people who are supposed to be believing the same things that I believe. I want to look at a text today in 2 Corinthians and uh, chapter 5. 2 Corinthians, Paul talks specifically about his ministry. People are starting to ask some questions about his ministry, and he answers questions about why he does what he does. Man, I, I, I hope people will ask that question about you and me. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? And so Paul's trying to answer this question. They're asking, Paul, why do you suffer And so as Paul lays out his ministry, I think he gives us a model for us to all to emulate. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wants us to understand that the logic of love outweighs all other logic known to the human race. The logic of love outweighs any other logic known in the human race. It is a love that changes everything. And it's a love that gives people the power to face things and do things that they've never imagined they could possibly do. How many of you have ever been inspired by love? And maybe you've done something courageous or outrageous in the name of the love of Jesus, the love that Jesus has for you. It gives you an energy and it gives you a power to do things that you think, what did I just do? Paul's audience couldn't make sense of his style of life. They couldn't make sense of his style of ministry. And it was different from anything else that they even began to expect. And so he tells them, he says, I want you to behave the way I behave. And the way I'm behaving is the way that I saw, that I think I understand Jesus behaved. And that's the invitation for all of us. So if you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. That's where we're going to start. It says this, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. I love Paul's phrases, all right? Because what he's saying is, if we're besides, if we are to be known to be a little crazy, it's all in the name of God. But if we are right and harsh, it's all in the name of you. And so, 
It would be like me standing up here and me doing something crazy, right? Maybe right, maybe the way Jesus would do it, and you guys sitting back and going, hmm, our pastor's gone to lunch. Right? And I'd be saying, no, 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 in the name of God, I think this and do this, right? But then I'd come in and say, you all are not, right? I just lay it down, which I don't do very often. But I just lay it down and tell you how it is, right? Well, then I'm in my right mind. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I may sometimes seem as though I'm out of my mind, but the case is because God's doing something in me. God's doing something through me. But when I deal with you, I'm deadly serious. But underneath all of it, Paul says, is my love for Jesus. It's my love for Jesus. Paul does what he does, not because of theory and not because of judgment. Paul does what Paul does because of love. And the love of Jesus gives us a new energy and the love of Jesus urges us forward and and, and propels us, compels us and forces us to do something. When the love of Jesus is in us and we see something wrong, that love gives us energy and power and compels us and drives us to do something about it. And when we see something we wash our hands, or we cast our judgment and we walk away, we have to ask, is the love of Jesus in me? If we want to be free, and this is the irony, if we want to be free of the constraints and the obligations, then we need to learn to live a life of love. (laughs) I've said it all along. The cost of love is great. The cost of love is huge. The cost of love is real. And so if you want to be free of obligations, if you want to be free, if you want to be free of all of these things, these constraints that come along with loving the way that Jesus loved, then just learn to live a life without the love of Jesus. Because that's how it'll work. It goes on. Listen to what Paul says. For the love love of Christ controls us, verse 14. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for who? Themselves. But for who? Him. Who for the sake died and was raised. Man, this is consistent in the scriptures. Jesus even said to those who said, we will follow you. Oh, really? 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 I don't have a place to lay my head, and you're going to follow me? Uh, Maybe not. Oh, let me go bury my father and mother first. Oh, we don't have time for that. I mean, Jesus, anytime he talked about the cost of following, it was going to be a complete surrender and a complete denial of myself and becoming like him, living for him. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ, and who no longer lives? Me. I no longer live, but who lives in me? Jesus. And the life I used to live, I now live by faith. And so right there in 2 Corinthians 14 and 15, we're reminded that I can no longer live. The love of Jesus is what the gospel is all about. We talk about the gospel all the time, but it's really about the love of of Jesus. The gospel is not just a mechanism to get people saved. 
And unfortunately, the church, too often, we've programmatically made the gospel a mechanism just to get people into the baptistry. You know, we pat you on the back and say, good luck. The Christian life is so, so easy. Yeah. I was baptized and I learned in the school of hard knocks that the Christian life wasn't easy. You mean I give my life to Jesus and things just don't go perfectly right the way I thought they should? You mean I have to make a conscious daily decision to follow Jesus every single day of my life? The gospel is an announcement of a love that has literally changed the entire world. A love that takes the people who find themselves loved like this and sends them off to live and to work in a totally and completely different way than we ever thought and ever managed. And the energy to get up and go forward as a Christian, as someone who works for the gospel, doesn't come from a sense of duty or from a sense of fear of being punished for something The energy that that moves us forward as a Christian to do the work of Jesus literally comes from the warm-hearted response of love to the love that has literally reached out to me, reached down to me, and reached all of us. That's what gives us the energy. This love will make us do things that even surprise ourselves. This love from Jesus, when it's really truly embraced, it will cause us to do things that we would look at you and you look at me and we'll think, what is wrong with them? Which is exactly what Paul was doing. Look at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Do you ever read Paul's sentences and go, huh? <laughs> like, like, what? <laughs> this can be a really confusing verse, or at least to me. Some of you probably already have it figured out, right? And it goes along with everything that we've been learning. And instead of expecting everything to conform to the fashions and to the customs of the world they were used to, now everything should be seen through the eyes of the gospel. And what is the eyes of the gospel? Jesus is what? Love. See, the old world was merely just purely human. That's all. And and so what Paul says, he says, according to the flesh, according to the flesh. That's a phrase he likes to use. If you read Romans, if you read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you read Galatians, you're going to hear this phrase, according to the flesh. You know what it literally means? It means the old corruptible passing away. And so in other words, Paul is saying a new world has come about. A new thing has been started. And a new thing has been embraced. And it all came through the death of Jesus in the flesh and the resurrection in the new body physically and not corruptible it can't decay this won't go away it's a new thing and the old is gone and the new has come is what he's going to tell us next look at verse 17 therefore if anyone is in christ if anyone is in christ he is a what new creation the old is gone And behold, what? 
The new has come. When I surrendered my life to Jesus, I became a new creation and the old is gone. The new has come. That means I'm living into this new world, this new world that God is intending to reach for himself through the love of Jesus. See, we are the threshold of this new creation. You and me. If you are in Jesus, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, we are the threshold of this new creation itself. And everything looks different because everything is different when it comes to Jesus. See, sometimes what happens is we keep trying to hold on, don't we? I'm a new creation, but I'd like to take some things with me. Man, you read through the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament. You read through the Bible. When God said, Abraham, I want you to move and I want you to do a new thing, what did he tell him to take with him? Now, could you imagine that conversation with his wife? I dare some of you to come home, men, dare you. Go home, tell your wife, you got a new job, you've accepted it, and you're moving to Florida. Ah, that's bad. Maine. (laughs) Ontario. Let's get Borough, Alaska, which I heard will not have daylight now until spring. All right? So tell her you're moving there. And you're going to start all over. You're taking nothing with you, just you and the kids. And then you report back to me how that conversation went. But this is the kind of thing Jesus did when he said there's a new thing. He literally meant a new thing. And when we come into this new thing, we don't bring the old with us. It's a new thing. We're a new creation. The old has passed away. And the the new is now come. We're on the threshold. We now see everyone. We now get to look at other people, other Christians, ourselves, literally anyone. And we see them in a new way from the way that we did before. Because now we see everyone and everything through this gospel lens of Jesus. And the old has passed away. Jesus told us multiple times. And here it is again. Paul says it, that the way, the way into the kingdom is always through death. Always through death. And the way into the kingdom requires a death of myself. And out on the other side is a new birth into God's kingdom and God's world. If we have not surrendered our lives, if we've not surrendered our souls, we cannot experience this new thing that Jesus is doing. If you're still trying to run your own life, if I'm still trying to do things the way I think they should be done, if I continue to wear the badge of God's lawyer or God's judge instead of God's love, I might not have experienced this new thing. goes on, verse 18. And this is from God, Paul says who through, through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Listen, if God's not doing that, what makes us think that we need to be God's officers and hold their trespasses against them? 
Again, we somewhere got confused that my, I have to somehow defend God. That I, that I, have, to, that I have to be his, his sheriff around town and make sure that the people who are doing the injustices to God are dealt with accordingly. Where do we get that when we read this? And it says that himself, as he's reconciling the world, is not counting their trespasses against them, but he's entrusting to us the message of policing, of condemnation, of judgment. Of what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation requires... We become negotiators. If you're going to be a negotiator, you're going to have to lay down all of your own stuff and engage. What has happened in and through Jesus is not a matter of God claiming a world that didn't belong to him or making a new one out of nothing, but God was reconciling to himself his own world, his beautiful and his beloved creation. God was bringing it all into himself. After long years of corruption and decay, if God was doing all of this in and through Jesus, the work now needed to be put into effect, it was necessary that we would implement it. And this gospel, God reconciling the world to himself in Jesus, is entrusted to who? Us. Something new has happened. Something new must now happen. And the world has never seen this before. Do you see Paul was living and behaving like someone who lived in a new world? He knew something that a lot of other people didn't know. Paul saw a lot of dead people. Not dead. Dead. And he was able to see it. And he was able to pick it. And he was able to begin doing something about it. The new world has a new king. And the king has his ambassadors. And Paul is inviting every one of us to go into the world with the message of the new king, a message inviting anyone and each one to be reconciled to God who made them, loves them, and provides the means of reconciliation for them to come back to know him and love him in return because that's what Jesus' death was all about. It was to reconcile all of us. Look at verse 20. Therefore, if all this is true, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. And God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. If all of this is true, and you are indeed a new creation, and you have been, you have been saved through the blood of Jesus, and you are this new creation, then you are an ambassador for Jesus. And that means you are being used by the mighty hands of God to make a difference in the world around you and in turn is going to make a huge difference in the kingdom. Listen, don't miss this. I am the way Jesus expresses his identity to the world. And read it. Get it here in your heart. This is it. The moment you are no longer by yourself. 
you now become the expression of Jesus to the world. You become the expression to your spouse. You become the expression of Jesus to your family, your kids, your grandkids, and your parents. You become the expression of Jesus to the people that you first encounter when you pull up into your workplace on Monday morning. You are the expression of Jesus to the customers that you deal with. We are the expression of Jesus to the people that we see on the street. We are the expression of Jesus to the people who live in a way that utterly drives me crazy. We are the expression of Jesus to everyone we encounter. What would it look like, Christians, if we really took this to heart? How would your day be different if you really, really, truly embraced? I know I'd slow down. I know I'd have better conversations. I know I'd probably talk less and I'd ask more questions. I'd probably drink a lot more coffee because these conversations wouldn't go well without a cup of coffee. I'd pray a lot more. I'd search the scriptures for answers that I couldn't find anywhere else. I'd be studying, 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 and studying even more how Jesus lived. I'd be listening to the small, quiet voice of the Spirit in me so that I could discern what to do and what not to do. If I lived my life really, truly believing that I am the expression of Jesus to everyone I encounter, I'd probably be broke. I'd be interruptible. I'd be much more patient. Let's just assume for a moment that the people that you run across every single day in your life are the very people that God has strategically put in your life and in your path for you to be the expression of Jesus to. One of the reasons that I love missions work I think our church should always be engaged in missions work is because we can learn some lessons and then we can apply them to our own lives. And I heard, a, heard of a great thing that one of our missions partners with Missions of Hope International experienced. Uh, this is Mary Kamau. And it's a story about Mary Kamau. And, and I want to just tell the story the best that I can um, of what happened with her just a few weeks ago. And I want you to understand something about Africa culture. I want, to, I want you to understand about Kenyan culture. Okay, Kenyan culture is all about tribalism. I think there are 70 some key tribes in Kenya, and you guys can correct me on that, Alan. Huh? 46, preacher count. Sheesh. 
but it's all about the tribe you're in. It's all about the tribe you're in. You, you vote in your tribe, you live in your tribe, you do the things, you have your traditions or your tribes. And man, anytime those things are threatened, man, it gets pretty challenging. So, so as Mary was entering into a school in Lodwar, uh, this is in the Turkana area, all right? As she entered into the school, she looked over and she saw a young girl. Go back to that first picture. There you go. There you go. And you see her there on the left, left. And she walks in to the schoolyard there and over, saw, over she looks at a young girl and these two men sitting outside this conference building where there was a conference for young girls going on. And Mary was thinking, I wonder who, the, who that girl is. I wonder who those men are. And I want you to understand something. When Turkana girls are married, they're given beads to wear around their neck. So you can look over at that picture and you can see the young girl has beads up along her neck. So Mary knew that the girl in the courtyard was married. What she soon learned was that the girl was 12 years old and had been married to one of the men in the courtyard who was 40 since she was 10. And right there, right there, right there, you know what I'd probably do or think about doing? The same thing you just thought of. <laughs> or the opposite. Just walk away, right? How ridiculous is that? How dumb is that? All oh, these dumb traditions of the Turkana people. I can't believe that they, it's 2019. I can't believe they're cast all these judgments, right? But that's not what Mary did. The girl whose name is Joyce became interested in what the girls were doing on the inside. Catch my words here. In the conference. And she kept looking in on them. And so Mary came out. And guess what she did? She invited her in. Mary brought her in and took her to join the girls. And Joyce loved joining the other girls. Doing the crafts and doing the activities. Since she was married at age 10, guess what? She missed out on a lot of those childhood things that children would do, especially school children would do, and particularly Mohi girls enjoying at their boarding school. And if you notice, son, go back to the other picture again. Oh, no, no, go, right there. The one on the right here, do you see who's in the doorway in the back? That's her dad. Keeping eyes, watching. See, it wasn't long before Mary learned that Joyce wanted to go to school too. But what would happen with the marriage and what would happen with her husband? And, and by the way, her husband is right here on the left. Oh, right there, perfect. Stay right there. On the left, wearing the green and black checkered skirt. All right. So what would happen with her husband? And her husband said that he would release Joyce from the marriage if he could get a job in exchange. So that's what I love about Mary come out. You know what she does? Picture on the left, what's she doing? Guess what she's doing? She is negotiating a job. 
She's negotiating the job for this husband. So she got on the phone and she made arrangements for the husband to get a job with Missions of Hope International. But the next problem to be solved was the father. And the father is here in the red skirt, brown shirt, right? It's not a skirt. I can't remember the name of it. Alan. Oh, he doesn't know that one. (laughs) That just made my day. Listen to this. He said that he could not take her to their home because the father had already received the bribe to give her in marriage. So it would be unlawful. It would be outside of their tradition for him to take her back again. And so what Joyce needed is Joyce needed a family to live with when school was not in session and she needed a sponsor. You know what happened? Mary and Wallace decided that day that they would take her in as their daughter. And so she's going to be spending breaks at Mary and Wallace's house in Nairobi. But she also needed a sponsor. And, and so this is pretty cool right up here on the right. No, 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 go back. Just calm down. <laughs> right up here on the right, the lady on the far right, uh, this is the owner of the Grace House. And if you've been to Kenya, you've likely stayed at the Grace House. Guess what she decides that day? She's going to become the sponsor of Joyce. And so now it was time to undo the marriage, and the beads were removed literally row by row. Now you can go to the next one. Literally removed row by row from Joyce's neck, and each row seems to symbolize the years that are being returned to Joyce's childhood. 12 years old, married for two years, and right here that day, they are unwinding, taking each one of these rows that, that literally represent, I, mean, I don't need to explain it to you. And the beads were returned to the father who placed them in a craft bag that he was given at the conference. And each little girl had received one of these beads with her crafts and supplies. The father received the bag with the marriage beads And Joyce received her life back and her freedom back. Look at that next picture. Right there. Do you see the bag on the floor on the left? And those beads were replaced with shoes and a school uniform that Joyce was given. Go to the next picture. And there she is. This is what I love. Her dad is doing what we call the Kenyan two-step. All right? And it's kind of just a sign of rejoicing. And we don't have the video. We just have a picture, but he's doing this. I don't do it very well. So you got to have rhythm, and I don't have that. But he's, Alan could do it, yeah. Boy, I'm like, I'm going to be having coffee with Alan. And I think I'm buying. <laughs> but the dad, do you see what he's doing? He's rejoicing. He, he's doing this dance. He's, he's, he's expressing the freedom. And here she is decked in all of her new clothes. The father's rejoicing. And the daughter is full of hope. And the promise of now living as a child again. 
As I've thought about this over and over and over and over and over again this week, Mary had a couple of choices. She could have put her hand up and said, forget it. I have too many things to do. I can only be in Turkana for a few days. There's a conference going on. There's probably an American church here who I've got to make sure are, you know, taking care of. But she stopped. And she started to ask some questions. And if you notice, she, Mary changed her clothes. So this was not just a one-day process. This was many days. Probably negotiating. I mean, think about this. The husband was willing to give his married girl back in replace for something. It was a negotiation. But there's everything in me that makes me think, you know what, I wouldn't even have given them the time of day. I wouldn't have even asked the questions. I probably would have sent the security guard out to say, you know what, you can't be in here. We have something going on in here. Why don't you just get out? Or, or maybe I wouldn't do those things. Maybe I'd actually think those things. But Mary got to be a part of something that was beyond anything that she could do by herself. Anything. See, I think what Mary understands that sometimes I forget is Mary understands that she is the way that Jesus is expressing himself to the people in Kenya. As Christians, we've been taught to be in the world, but not of the world. And we took this to mean that we should be isolated and we should be insulated. Hey, you don't believe me? Then let me ask this question. Who do you hang out with outside of this place that should be in this place? See, see that's, that's the question that we have to answer for ourselves. How do we live in the nuance of these intense differences with other people? How do we do it? Some of these people we call our family. Some of us are going to have people at our Thanksgiving dinner table on Thursday who rub us absolutely the wrong way. The choices they've made, the decisions that they follow, the, 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 polit politic, the politics that they embrace, the, the, the people that they embrace irritate us and drive us crazy. And we'll smile. See, we're all setting a table. If you came in this morning, you saw a table sitting out there. And the place cards are things like you can't belong. Judgment. Hatred. And some of us, even without realizing it, we've set a table that won't let people in. We've set a table that casts judgment and hatred disregard what are we setting our table with see our love the love of Jesus that can only come from him and through him is what should be sitting at our table I want to share some really practical thoughts man I am out of time but can I just share a couple of really practical thoughts about how I'm trying to set my table and maybe this will help you here's the first thing I ask myself is there another way is there another way? We often think that we either have to fight or we flight. Right? We've been taught that. You see something wrong, you either fight it or you run away from it. And the question is, is there another way? Is there another way? 
we have to ask ourselves, is there another way? We think that we have to fight against those who are different than us, or we think that we have to run away from those who are different than us. Why? Because, well, they might rub on off on us, and we don't want to be like them. Is there another way? And I ask myself this question all the time, and I want us all to ask her, is there another way? What I hear culturally saying is this or this, I just have to ask myself, is there another way? Is there a different way? Here's another reality for me. The way of Jesus is something different. I need God to do something in me. I can't do this. You can't do this. We can't invite people to our table who are different than us and think different and live different, all these other things that are different than us on our own. We can only do it as Jesus does something in us. The only way that we can embrace this idea of messy love is to abide in Jesus and to let Jesus fill me up, to live for Jesus, to surrender to Jesus, to make a daily decision that I'm going to live the way that he lived. Messy love requires that I'm connected to Jesus every day. Every day. We have to read and reread Scripture and assess Scripture. We need to ask more questions. We need to ask things like, are there things here that I haven't considered? And how is Jesus working in my life? And how might Jesus be working in their life? We cannot love like Jesus while having a Sunday-only faith. I need to be in a group of people who are going to hold me to it and sharpen me and challenge me. Here's another one. I should be in a relationship with a person before I cast judgment about the situation the person's in. Man, we are so fast to cast judgment. And it's easy for us to cast judgment because we're not in a relationship with those people. And the reality is, I should just zip my lips until I am in a relationship with the people who live different Think different, vote different. We quickly dismiss someone else's story because it goes against something that we think or we believe. This has happened. I'm not going to, I don't have time to go there. Here, let's keep going. If you really want to know some of the challenges that Sarah and I have faced that have surprised us, man, ask us. Ask us. We can't eat at a particular restaurant in this town because every time we've gone, people have, and this is not an exaggeration, ridiculed our family because we have a son who doesn't look like us. Now listen. I'm opening the can, right? Oh, I didn't want to do that, and I only have nine minutes to go. We have had people tell us that we are wrong, that that doesn't happen, that we're too sensitive. Ask us. Sit with us. Listen to our story before you judge us. That's all I'm saying. I play a role in making it easy for lost people to seek and find Jesus. See, somewhere along the road, we thought, man, they need to behave like us and believe like us before they can belong like us. But what did Mary do? Mary said, come in with us. And guess what follows? 
She's going to believe like Mary, and she's going to begin behaving like Mary. But somewhere in the church, we said, you have to behave and believe like you and I, or like I do before you can belong like I do. Now, we've got that backwards. I play a role in making it easy or hard for lost people to find Jesus. If I'm going to serve God well, and if I'm going to sleep at night, I have to be true to my conscience, and I have to be true to the understanding of Scripture as I understand it, yet I need to do all of those things in a very respectable way. Does that make sense? I've got another thought, but I can't find my notes here. Last one, most important one right here. My identity is in Jesus. See, this is what happens. This is what happens. When my identity isn't in Jesus first, then my identity becomes that I'm, well, here it is. I'm a middle-aged, middle-class, white male who is heterosexual, who is married, so I'm a husband, I'm a father, right? I'm a pastor. So all of those things become my identity, don't they? So when anything challenges my identity, if my identity is those things, what's my natural reaction? Oh yeah, I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight, right? When, when our identity becomes any, if my identity is Democrat or Republican, and that becomes challenged, guess what? Oh, I'm going to fight, right? If I believe in this or I believe in that and I vote this way or vote that way and that becomes challenged, what am I going to do? I'm going to fight. I'm going to dismiss people and what they think and I'm going to stand and I'm going to fight for what I believe. We're going to take on the judgment and we're going to become God's lawyer and we're going to do some things that, man, aren't going to go very well. But what I realized about Jesus, when my identity is in Jesus and my identity is all about Jesus and Jesus in me, Jesus was incredibly comfortable, very comfortable in situations that I probably wouldn't be comfortable in. He was at a party at Matthew's house, a tax collector's house, somebody he was going to call to be his disciple while the Pharisees stood outside and ridiculed him and scrutinized him and judged him. Jesus was totally comfortable with a child on his lap. Jesus was incredibly comfortable being around sinners and those who were not like him. When my identity is in Jesus, I can be comfortable with people who think very different than I think, but I have to make Jesus first in my life. And church, some of us, are in an identity crisis. How do you solve it? John said it beautifully. This is what he said. Less of me and more of him. Less of me and more of him. More of him and less of me. And if I begin to live my life that way, then I can begin setting a table that is a table of love and mercy, and compassion, and grace. And I can invite people to my table who think different than me, who live different than me, who, who don't even believe the same things that I believe. I can invite those people to my table. 
and I can have a conversation with them, and I can be open to them, and I can share the pillars of truth that I believe in because my identity isn't based in the things that they believe. My identity is based in the person of who Jesus is. I wrote this this week. I don't want us to be a church where we have to fear asking the wrong questions. I don't want us to be a church where we fear telling a dark part of our journeys. I don't want us to be a church, a place where we can't share our conclusions based on our own experiences. I want us to be a church where the table is open for anyone to belong. What kind of table are you setting? We're going to sing a song here in a second. I want you just to think. I want you to pray. I want you to sing. I want this to be our prayer. Because it needs to be more of him and less of me. Even this Thanksgiving, church, listen. This Thanksgiving, you're going to have people at your table who you disagree with. Who don't live the life the way you think they should live life. You're going to have people at your table who vote different than you. Believe different than you think different than you, love different than you. There are even going to be people at your table who pray different than you pray. And the only way to set a table with love and grace and mercy and compassion is to have more of him and less of me.